0: Yeah, I think at some point my mother was worried about my sanity because I was constantly talking to imaginary <laughs> beings, but also like apologizing to objects when I bumped into them. <laughs> Everyone who deals with words knows that because of your words you can easily get into trouble in Turkey. I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. Uh, My Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom.
1: Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed. This podcast is all about going behind the celebrity to understand how they came to find their voice, from keeping a childhood diary, say, to learning different languages. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, or you can tweet with the Intelligence Squared hashtag IQ2. Novelist Elif Shafak has become one of the most eloquent voices in modern European fiction and, more generally, as an intellectual in the public sphere. She speaks out on human, especially women's rights, and freedom of belief. Born in Strasbourg in France to secular parents, she writes and broadcasts in both Turkish and English and is the most widely read female author in Turkey. Her books include 10 novels and they move across contemporary and historical scenes, many set in Turkey with transnational settings such as The Bastard of Istanbul, The Architect's Apprentice set in the 16th century reign of the Ottoman Suleiman the Magnificent and Three Daughters of Eve*. The French government awarded her the Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres in 2010. Thank you, Ali, for coming in. I want to go back to the young Elif. What was she like? Was she always good with
0: words? Thank you so much. I think I was a very lonely child. I was an only child raised by a single mother, uh, a working mother. And um, it was a bit unusual because I was born in France to Turkish parents. And afterwards, we came to Turkey, me and my mother. My father stayed in France. And I found myself, after Strasbourg, I found myself in this very conservative, middle-class neighbourhood in the middle of Ankara, which was my grandmother's universe. So there was a bit of a cultural shift there. And I really think uh, books became my best friends at a very early age. And
1: how many languages were you speaking and finding your voice in?
0: You know, I have forgotten French. I, I can't speak very, very little has remained. Spanish was my second language after Turkish. And then English was my third. I started learning it at the age of ten, but somehow it is where I feel at home. So it became my main language. Well, you've mentioned these two very strong, very different women in your lives—your mother and your grandmother. What were they like? What was your upbringing like? It was really very unusual because I was raised by two women with very different personalities. I didn't grow up in a typical, traditional patriarchal Turkish family. My mother was is very westernized, modern, secular, very well educated and then my grandmother is pretty much the opposite. She's more eastern, more spiritual, very superstitious, more irrational if I may say, and less educated because she was not allowed to have a proper education. And she's a very strong personality. So to me what was interesting was to see the solidarity, the sisterhood if you will, between these two women because they supported each other through very dark or difficult times. So I never forget my grandmother's intervention. It was my grandmother who said, I'm going to take care of my my granddaughter, you should go back to university because my mum had dropped out of university when she fell in love and Mm. when she got married. So she went back to university. She graduated with a very good degree and then she became a diplomat. But during those 10 years, it was my grandmother who raised me.
1: And what time period are we talking about? What decade was this? So we're
0: talking about late 1970s, early 1980s. And this was an interesting time in Turkey because there was a lot of political violence Um, very unstable the entire country was. And I remember very vividly in my grandmother's house, it was like pure magic. Um, She was a bit of a healer in her own way. Uh, So people would come to her uh, with skin diseases and other things. She would heal them. Uh, I know it sounds very irrational, but I've seen these things happen. And inside the house, like she would be melting lead Trying to ward off the evil eye and things like that. Meanwhile, outside the window, there would be political demonstrations, bombs exploding, people dying. Every day, something horrible would happen on the streets. And I remember as a child, thinking by standing by that window and thinking about this magic that I found inside the house and the political clashes outside. And maybe that left an impact because I think in my work, somehow I tried to bridge that political. And maybe the spiritual. Did you talk to your grandmother about her her use of her belief in spirituality?
1: Did she talk to you about the importance of
0: it? You know, one thing that left an impact on me now, when I look back, I realize there was a summer when I spent time with my paternal grandmother and maternal grandmother. And they were incredibly different women. I say this because when people make huge generalizations about Muslim women or Muslims, I always think even my own grandmothers were so different in their interpretations of religion. But at the first glance, they were both Sunni, Turkish, you know, middle class. And yet they couldn't have been more different with regards to their interpretations of religious teachings. Just to give you one example, uh, my paternal grandmother's notion of religion, I believe, was based on fear so for her God was always watching this paternal gaze, judging, punishing, writing down your sins, hell, heaven, haram, you know, these were the main concepts. Whereas for my maternal grandmother, there was humor, she made fun of the orthodoxy, there was room for that. You know, the Quran was on the shelf, you could touch it, you could skim through, you could put it back. Whereas with the other grandmother, it was high on the wall, you were not supposed to touch it, you were only supposed to respect it. Whereas in the second case, it was you know accessible you could question you could ask questions but more importantly perhaps I think it was centered around love and compassion and kindness completely different way they the the way they understood the the same teachings
1: I gather you'd always been fascinated with telling stories and you said reading books was some a kind of safe world for you you used to tell stories to your imaginary friends is that right when you were
0: a child yeah, I think at some point my mother was worried about my sanity because I was constantly talking to imaginary <laughs> beings, but also like apologizing to objects when I bumped into them because furniture, you know, inanimate objects, to me, they they all had a character. They all had colors. Of course, all children have that kind of imagination, but we learn it to tame it down. Um we become normalized. And that's something that worries me. I mean, I've been to many schools in Turkey giving talks. It's amazing to see how seven-year-old, eight-year-old kids have this amazing chutzpah imagination. And when you visit high schools, they don't, they don't express it anymore. Particularly girls have become timid, very conscious of what other people might say about them. So we teach these kids to, to just be part of a crowd, to not perform. to stand out, Yeah, to, to conform. And that's something that, that really makes me sad. Your mother bought you a diary when you were eight. How important was that diary? The diary was very important, except I had nothing to write in it because I really thought my life was very boring. So instead of writing about real events, I started about writing about things that hadn't really happened. I started writing about people who... It didn't exist. So stories. So, so it was stories, yeah. in fact. I mean, instead of writing, keeping a proper journal, I, I think I right away, straight away started writing stories. You were left-handed and found it difficult yeah. to write. And I mean, like many cultures, there
1: was this insistence about being taught to write using your right hand in school. What effect did that have on you?
0: I was an early reader, but I it took me a long, long time to learn how to hold a pencil and how to how to write the alphabet. I think I was the last in my classroom probably to get that red ribbon. They used to give us red ribbons. Um, So this is a school, primary school in in Ankara. We were like 44 kids in the classroom. I went through all that nationalistic education. um, And I remember the, the teacher very Explicitly telling me that being left handed was a problem, it had to be corrected. And she taught me to, to keep my hand under the desk, my left hand. And she said, send it to exile. I had never heard the word exile before, and it's remained with me, it stayed with me. It's a chilling. Yeah. Idea, isn't yeah. It? Did you get headaches or anything? I didn't get headaches, but still to this day, I find it very frustrating. I mean, I have learned, I I use my right hand when I'm writing, but I hate my handwriting. I can't connect with it. And only when I'm sitting at my desk with a keyboard, then I think my left hand and my right hand can can connect. So I like computers for that reason. So you can't write with your left hand anymore? Um, No, I can't. Although everything else I do with my left hand still, you know, holding, you know, Things.
1: I will yeah. notice when we're words chatting, often when you gesticulate, your your left hand yeah, it's is when it comes <laughs> out. <laughs> Waves. Your relationship with writing when you find it and with reading is fascinating because... You looked at the alphabet and there's this silent letter G in the Turkish alphabet. And you
0: have a special connection to it and you you think it it represents something. Can you tell me? It's quite interesting, the story of the silent G. We have two letters. We have the G and then there's the silent G with that little curvy line on top. Um, And you're not supposed to read it, pronounce it. It's a ghost letter. It doesn't exist. We never put it at the beginning of a word. It's usually in the middle. Um, And you have, when you see it, you have to skip. So that's something unique to, to the Turkish language. And I was always interested in that silence. Maybe over time I realized, of course, as storytellers, we are interested in words and stories and the beauty of the language and all that. But I think we're equally interested in silences, the things we don't talk about, we cannot talk about. I know I am interested in that. And in many of my books, I think there's a constant effort to give more voice to silences, or to try to understand why do we have these taboos? This could be a political taboo, a cultural one, or a sexual taboo. Do you have a, as you've established, quite a deep relationship with letters and shapes.
1: The shape, the circle, the color, and even the taste of letters—is that right?
0: Yeah, I, uh, I of course I didn't know there was a, there was a word for that. The synesthesia. Uh, it, it took me a while to to discover. But oftentimes I associated words with colours, colours with tastes. That's how I remember and that's how I learn a language. Have you got an example of, of letters and tastes I mean, that you've felt? Well, uh, in, in one of my talks, I, I, in a TED talk, I try to open it up a little bit. Sometimes I wonder the word motherland, for instance, how would it taste like? Um, the word exile to me, it, 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 it comes with colours. Istanbul, I think every city has colours. Oh, to me, Istanbul, Istanbul, to me, Istanbul is mostly shades of, of purple. Also a little bit of crimson, scarlet there I would throw into that mix. A little bit of orange. But those are the colours of Istanbul. Whenever I think about the city or I write about the city, these colours immediately rush into, into my mind. And what about the tastes? What happens is, when you're a storyteller, you, you, you're constantly thinking, how can I express the same thing in a different way? It's, it's that, that, that small question is what, what triggers us. But, you sit at your desk and you try to taste the words. So ca- can you give me an example where you have come up with a taste that matches a word? For instance, Storyland, the, the word Storyland, I think it has... Uh, to me it's 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 a spicy taste but I say this in a positive way I like I like okay. spices the, the the moment I say storyland it is as if the part you know' it, there's a spicy taste in in my tongue I know it sounds odd but that's how I feel no, not at all it's it's fascinating I want to talk a bit more about
1: your family your mother you said went back to university she then became a diplomat uh and you were taken from what sounds like, you know, quite a small superstitious neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood of your grandmother, to this rather fancy international school in Spain where you were the only Turkish child. What was that like?
0: I think in my grandmother's house, I always, I mean, in that neighborhood in Ankara, I always felt a bit like an insider outsider. I did feel like the other. Maybe this was not the word I would use at the time, but this is how I see it today when I look back. And the interesting thing is when I was zoomed to Madrid, to this very Porsche international school, I still felt like the insider outsider. I was still, you know, this awkward child. I remember it very vividly. You know, there's almost a hierarchy of nationalities in a school like that. I remember being a little bit jealous of Dutch children, Swedish children, because it was so cool to be Scandinavian. There was nothing, um, no negative connotations with being a Scandinavian. Whereas when you were Turkish, when you were the only Turkish child... Um, for instance, this I'm talking about early 1980s, mm-hmm. and uh, you will remember a Turkish terrorist had tried to kill the Pope. Oh, yes. So I would go to school and, and the other children would be asking me why uh, we had done such a thing. There was this we, you know, you, you are part of a collectivity. Or uh, Turkey would get zero points in Eurovision Song Contest, and the, the next day I would go to school and all the children would be singing and making fun. Or, for instance, there was um, there was a military coup in Turkey in, in 1980 and huge human rights violations. There were intellectuals living in exile. And children would follow these things and ask me questions about them, ask me questions about headscarves, this and that. And so all of a sudden you realize there is this national identity that I don't know what to do with. I mean, I am in their eyes. I am not myself. I represent a national identity. And maybe because of that experience, I started questioning these things at a relatively early age. How did you see yourself then at that age, given the way people were imposing identity on you. Did you see yourself as Turkish? Of course, I saw myself as Turkish, but I saw myself as Elif, you know, I didn't think I was part of any collectivity. And I just tried to be an individual. I'm still trying to be an individual. And I think that's the hardest thing, especially in countries such as my motherland, Particularly for women, it is very difficult to be recognised as an individual, not part of any collectivistic identity. I don't like identity politics. I don't belong in any tribe and I don't want to. Now, you also moved to Jordan and to Germany before
1: going back to Turkey. And you've said that everywhere I went, my imagination was the only suitcase
0: I could take with me. What did you mean by that? Well, because I think I didn't have a sense of continuity. There were lots of ruptures in, in, in my life. Uh, Maybe I didn't have a sense of center either. And books really gave me that sense of center. They kept my pieces together. So when I say today books can save us, books can guide us and books can accompany us. They can be our companions of the road for a lifetime. I really mean it because this is exactly what happened to me. Can you remember any particular books that had a profound effect on you? The house that I grew up um, in, in my grandmother's house, there weren't too many books, to be honest. I mean, on the shelf, there were a limited number of books. And most of them were these love tales or heroic tales from the Middle East, Leila and Mejnun, Kerem and Aslı, you know, Farhad and Shirin. So what I would do, I would reread those books. Whatever I found, I I would read and read and read again the same copy, except the second time you read, you start thinking, how would I write it? Uh Had I been the writer of this story, would I finish the story in a different way? So maybe that triggered my imagination. I didn't grow up with a big library. At school, again, it was quite limited. But I remember very vividly the first time I read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, you know, these are the things that stayed with me and I was fascinated. I never knew you could tell a story that way. But it's interesting because, of course, it's a historical novel.
1: He's, yeah. He was writing about the French Revolution. Yes. And you've often yeah. gone into, you know, historical settings where, yeah. you know, you have to
0: use imagination and I guess some yeah. research. Yes. Interestingly, of course, you know, when I read Dickens for the first time, I, it's to me it's fascinating. You can travel in time. You can travel across countries, cities, and also throughout different uh, periods. But perhaps what was equally interesting, even though he's writing about a different land, a time I've never seen, a country I've never known until then, it still felt very familiar. And when I moved to Istanbul, I had the same feeling. I mean, Hmm. as if Charles Dickens was writing about you know certain neighborhoods in Istanbul there's this sense of familiarity that maybe people outside of Europe would understand better because the whole chaos of the city you know the underbelly of the of the city how you deal with the, the sadness but also the beauty the poverty how visible that is on the streets lots of things that he was writing about to me were the stories of Istanbul
1: language has clearly been really important in finding your voice and the written word in particular when you did discover books why has the written word
0: been so powerful to you something interesting happened that when i came back from spain to turkey as a high, now now i'm in high school um i realized while i was away 4 years away the Turkish language, of course, keeps moving on. And I failed to understand some of the jokes, some of the slang, because language is organic. It's open-ended, constantly evolving. And when you don't speak that language for a while, you you, you realize the things that you're missing out. So I had to sit down and study my own mother tongue. And this is something other children or teenagers wouldn't do at that age because we take it for granted. We just think our, you know, our mother tongue is something we own. We, we have it in our pocket. I never had that feeling. I couldn't take it for granted. And once I started studying Turkish, I couldn't stop. you know. Uh, and I also started studying old words, which is a big issue in Turkey because, as uh, you might remember, we have Turkified the language in Turkey. Uh, This was a multi-ethnic, multilingual empire. So in the Ottoman language, the syntax is Turkish, but you have words coming from Arabic, Persian, Ladino, right? Uh, Armenian, Greek. So all of that was gone. Uh, Around 45% of the vocabulary was purged, was taken out. Mm. So once I started studying, I realized I love these old words. And why are we taking them out? And who has the right to take them out? Um and that became a big issue when I started publishing my work in Turkish because I use old and new words and I think we we need all of them at the same time otherwise we lose nuances. Can you give an example of an old word that you put into any of your books? For instance in Turkish I can say um I can say yellow, I can say red, right? But all the shades in between we don't have them anymore because they used to come from Persian. So, there's a part of me that longs for them, or or the shades between green and blue same. Uh, they used to come f- from Persian. and to me that that's a good example because it shows us how we lose the shades in between. just to give you one example from maybe the English language, uh, when I write in English, when in English, or when I listen, people speak English. It's fascinating to me when I hear people say kismet or chutzpah, yes. and then no one says, oh, that's an Arabic word, kismet, or chutzpah yeah. is, a, is a Jewish word. Let's yeah. take it out. It doesn't belong in the English language. Nobody says that yeah. because it is part of the language. It evolved, accepting all these words. So they part feel, of the history. Suddenly that's why modern lost. Turkish has become a little sterile then. I think it has become sterile. We have narrowed it down. And by losing all those nuances, I think our imagination, the way we express ourselves, it has all been affected because languages shape us. We tend to think that we shape language, but I think it's the other way
1: around. Mm. You write in a really interesting way. You write in Turkish and in English, but sometimes you write in one language and get it translated back into the other. Can you talk me through how and
0: why? So my early novels, the the first five of them, I wrote in Turkish first. After Istanbul, I think I felt a little bit suffocated. I mean, it's an amazing city for artists, but also it can be quite suffocating. So I moved to Boston and then Michigan, and then I lived in Arizona, Tucson, uh, of all places, just 30 minutes away from the Mexican border. And when I went to Boston, it was like an animal instinct. I decided to switch completely. Um to writing in English, so m- my journey with the English language I started learning it at the age of ten. ever since then, I had been writing short stories, maybe some poems, but always keeping it to myself. I never dared to write anything or publish any work in English until that point. and I think rather than a rational decision, it was really like an animal instinct. I needed another zone to breathe in another space and the english language provided me just that today i realize if there's melancholy sadness sorrow in my writing i definitely find it easier to express it in turkish but when it comes to humor irony satire it's much much easier in in english and humor is very important to me i mean the word irony doesn't even exist in the turkish language we don't do irony you know <laughs> so um but i feel attached to each language in a different way my connection with the turkish language is more emotional and I think my connection with the English language is more cerebral. And I think in order to balance myself, I need both.
1: Oh, a bit like your left hand and your right hand. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Now, you don't write autobiographical fiction, which some writers do. Mm. And I wonder how you find your stories and whether perhaps you do draw personal experiences because, you know, a novel like Three Daughters of Eve, which is about women who meet at Oxford University, you had that international
0: experience you know you did go to university usually yes i do not write uh, autobiographical um, stories at all maybe it's because of the way i started remember i uh, i said my life was very boring so i was much more interested in rather than telling my story to the world i was much more interested in not being myself you know what is the beyond the limits of the self that i found at birth what is beyond that uh, just becoming someone else and then someone else, putting yourself in the shoes of another person. That fascinated me, that existential almost journey. Uh, and still it does. There's a bit I've got to ask you to read from quite early on in the book. And perhaps you could tell us what, what what's sort of part of the novel it is. So it's it's the story of, of, of three women, young women, uh, who attend Oxford University. They take the same class from the same professor at first glance, they all come from Muslim backgrounds. Uh, but again, their relation to their identity is completely different. So we have uh, a British Iranian girl named Shirin, who is uh, the child of exiled parents. And she's very critical of all religions, but particularly Islam, because of the lack of gender equality. Then there's Mona, who is uh, Egyptian-American. Um, uh, she wears a headscarf. She is a practicing Muslim. Uh, She's a faithful person and she complains about Islamophobia because she experiences this almost on a daily basis. And then there's Piri, who is a Turkish girl, who is much more confused, less certain about her worldview. And uh, she asks lots of questions about everything and anything. In a way, it's the story uh, of Piri, the the book is. But jokingly, they call themselves the Sinner Sinner the believer and the confused and i wanted to focus on the on the journey of the confused and maybe the confusions of our times the part that i would like to read is uh, about peri's parents who are very different people her mother is very religious but in a very strict way and her father is a secularist and a democrat unlike many democrats in turkey he's quite depressed Her parents were as incompatible as tavern and mosque. The frowns that descended on their brows, the stiffness that infused their voices, identified them not as a couple in love, but as opponents in a game of chess. On the faded board of their marriage, they each pushed forward, strategizing the next moves, capturing castles, elephants and viziers, aiming to deliver the ultimate defeat. Each side saw the other as the tyrant in the family, the intolerable one, and long to say, someday, checkmate, Shah Manad, the sovereign is helpless. Their marriage had been so deeply woven with mutual resentment that they no longer needed a reason to feel wronged and frustrated. Even at that young age, Peri sensed that love was not, and probably never had been, the reason why her parents were together. Thank you so much. What you've given us in that reading is a sense of a marriage which
1: is actually more complicated and Mm -hmm. the daughter has kind of worked out. Mm -hmm. There's something
0: about the opposites Mm -hmm. attracting. Mm -hmm. What was it you wanted to explore? As you know, Turkey is a very polarised country. We have been divided into islands of people who don't talk to each other greet each other anymore and as if we don't share anything anymore and that polarization always worries me because I think it made everything worse uh, the populism authoritarianism in Turkey became worse of a couple of metaphor yeah. for something in some ways maybe they're a microcosmos of what's happening at large in the country because we are a very polarized country we have been divided into into ghettos almost cultural ghettos islands of and people don't talk to each other it politics affected everything in turkey it's very divisive it's very aggressive it affected families friendships it just broke people down in the middle And so the family that I'm talking about here, Perry's parents, maybe are experiencing that polarization firsthand because uh, the the mother over the years becomes more and more religious. And the father, he was always a Democrat, but he becomes more emotional about his own political views. And the gap between them widens and widens. (laughs)
1: One of the things that you're very well known for in Britain is not just as as a novelist and writer, but someone who's often on news and current affairs programmes, you know, commenting on whether it's events in Turkish politics or, or human rights and, and, and political issues that you campaign on. And I know you studied politics and international relations. And it made me wonder, did you ever consider a career, a bit like your mother, in diplomacy or, or in politics?
0: No, not not in politics uh, or diplomacy. But I, I stayed in academia for a long time. And there's a part of me that, that loves that world. I love learning. Uh, and my background is more interdisciplinary. So I have been teaching at different universities in Turkey, in the UK, in the US, in different departments like women's studies, cultural studies, Middle Eastern studies, uh, political philosophy. These are the areas that I learn from all the time. But coming back to your question, I think if you happen to be a storyteller, from wounded democracies, or wobbly democracies, or non-existing democracies, such as Turkey today, but also countries like uh, Pakistan, Egypt, you know, Venezuela, the Philippines, r- Russia. The list is so long today. If you happen to come from such lands, I don't think you have the luxury of being apolitical or non-political. You can't say, you know, I'm just only going to write my own stories and close the door, uh, because so much is happening beyond that door. Also, as a feminist, I do know that uh, politics is not only about political parties or the parliament. There is politics wherever there's there's power relation. So uh, the personal is also political. In that regard, I don't think my work is non-political at all. There is politics in my work. But here's where I make a distinction. I think a writer's job is to ask the right questions, And not to try to find the answers or to preach or to teach something. I don't like that. For me, it's much more important to ask the questions about difficult issues.
1: But even that can be quite controversial now. And you don't need me to tell you. You know, everyone watches how Turkey's been changing. It's gone through quite a difficult period since Erdogan came to power. I wonder, has your relationship with the country changed or what do you feel you can say changed? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I had um, a taste of, of that when my novel, the, the Bastard of Istanbul, was published. I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness. We have this Article 301 in our constitution that protects Turkishness, even though nobody knows what that means. So it can be misused, misinterpreted in every way. Um, and that was, to me, a very unsettling experience because for a year, I this trial went on. Uh, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my armenian fictional characters in the courtroom because as if they were real as if they were real because the words of my fictional characters were taken out plucked out of the of the text and used as evidence against me so because the, they were they deleted words that were because that because was. i used the word genocide um, oh, which because definitely is definitely not what Turkey a, yeah, accepts. Because, because this is a book that does talk about the Armenian genocide and it's also a book that deals with memory and amnesia. You know, what are the things that we can remember or we are not allowed to remember? I mean, I wish I could sit here and tell you that Turkey has made progress ever since then, but I think it got worse and worse. So today, every journalist, particularly for journalists, is quite hard, but also for writers, academics poets. Everyone who deals with words knows that because of your words, you can easily get into trouble in Turkey.
1: Interestingly, in uh, Three Daughters of Eve, uh, Alif, there's a bit when a father's talking about democracy and getting drunk. Would you read it to us?
0: Sure. So the father's name is Mensur, uh, by the way. And he says, travel the world, you will see everyone drinks differently, Mensur would say. He himself had moved around a fair amount in his youth as a ship's engineer. In a democracy, when a man gets drunk, he cries, what happened to my sweetheart? Where there's no democracy, when a man gets drunk, he cries, what happened to my sweet country?
1: Why did you put that in? It's it's quite pointed, isn't it?
0: Well, I think the number of people who feel sad um, as they watch what's happening to their motherlands uh, is increasing, you know, east and west. They can't recognise the countries they were born or raised in and and this knowing that things can go backward and this can happen very fast is really heartbreaking, especially when there was an amazing positive potential. like we experienced this in Turkey. We thought we could go forward and the slide backwards was very fast into authoritarianism, ultranationalism, more r- religious fundamentalism. And alongside those things, I think sexism, Uh, misogyny and homophobia, they go hand in hand. When countries tumble into uh, ultranationalism and populism, uh, also it affects women and minorities immediately. So that's why I think we women have more reasons to be worried about today. We've also said that you can sometimes feel
1: the pressure to be a spokesperson for a whole country, you know, because you are a Turkish woman. But you do still speak out. And thinking back to how, as a child, you know, you felt having this identity imposed on you was kind of unfair. I'm interested in the fact that you do still choose to speak out on what's happening in Turkey and
0: and why. I think as writers, uh, we do need to speak out and louder. Uh, We need more women in the public space, uh, a diversity of of women. And I I believe after 2016, it's very clear that it's not only writers on the edge of Europe who feel that way, but maybe writers in the UK, in the US, in France, in Sweden as well. We do need to speak up about core values and the dangers of losing those core values. I'm not interested in party politics or partisanship at all, but I think... Uh, when it comes to freedom of speech, human rights, women's rights, LGBT rights, certain core issues, we need to speak up. On the other hand, when I speak up, uh, I do it as Ilif. I don't represent any collectivistic identity at all. And when I look at myself, I, I don't like identity politics. I've always been very critical of identity politics. Why? Two things. Of course, I'm an Istanbulite. I'm very attached to Istanbul. But there's a part of me that's attached to the Balkans as, a, as an area, the Aegean Sea, mm-hmm. the Mediterranean. I think I carry so many things in my soul from the Middle East. Wherever I go, they will come with me. By birth, by choice, I'm a European. The values that I share, I have become a Londoner over time And I would like to think of myself as a global soul. I I want to become a global soul. To me, these things are important. So why can't I have multiple belongings uh, instead of a single monolithic identity, which is in my eyes an illusion anyway. None of us has uh, a monolithic identity. But if I may share this with you, you know, I lived in Boston for a while and it left a big impact on me, African-American women's movement, in Boston. And as I kept reading in the archives, in 1970s, there was an amazing momentum and an amazing manifesto for diversity. People like Audre Lorde, they were saying, look at me, you know, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm a poet, I'm lesbian, uh, I'm working class, this and that. They were aware that uh, there's no such thing as a single identity and oppression can come from many, many, Angles. I suppose we'd call it intersectionality now. Intersectionality, but we have lost that. You know, today it's people think it's much more progressive um, to be just to belong in one tribe and and, and to become the spokesperson of that tribe. I I think that's a big step backwards. We are making the political discourse more narrow. Uh, and also clashes are inevitable once you retreat into into tribes. And
1: you thought about it so carefully, but it also inevitably makes me want to ask, as someone who's
0: always spoken
1: out, who's always believed in, in th- focusing on what unites us and not our divisions. Relatively recently, you've gone public about your bisexuality, mm-hmm. and I wondered why you did decide to talk about
0: it. Well, it took me such a long time. It was a long journey. Although, uh, when when you look at my work, when you look at my novels, there's always a very clear maybe emphasis on sexual minorities and the desire to bring the periphery to the center. This has been a very important part of my work. And in all my interviews, I have supported LGBT rights for, for many, many, many years in Turkey as well. Uh, and if I can share this example with you, When I look at my readers, particularly in Turkey, among them there are many people who are quite xenophobic or quite homophobic because this is the way they were raised. But then they come and they say, you know, I read your book and this is the character that I love the most or I cried when that character was hurt and maybe the character they're talking about is Armenian or Jewish or Greek or or bisexual or transsexual or gay. And I thought about this, you know, people who are relatively... In more intolerant in the public space about minorities. How is it possible that when they're reading a novel, they can connect with that identity better? I don't think that's a coincidence, you know, because this this authoritarian culture requires collectivistic energy, synchronized energy. And what the novel does is to to revive an individuality, <laughs> But not a selfish individuality. It's the kind of individuality that connects you with the rest of humanity. It gives us empathy. It gives us empathy and it makes us realize that the other is my brother, the other is my sister, the other is me, in fact. So this is what I believed in for many years. But I never had the courage to come forward and say, it's also my personal story. Because I was so afraid um, of the backlash that this would create in Turkey, the slander, the ridicule, the hate speech, and this is exactly what happened when I gave my TED talk in New York um, for about three weeks nonstop in Turkey, all over the media on TV, um, online. Of course, the insults, the slander, and the hate speech was was awful. Was awful. But I um, I'm glad I was able to to say it finally. You know, it's it's. It's hard to um, to speak up in, in countries like Turkey. Uh, sometimes you realise, of course, political taboos are difficult to question, but sexual taboos can also be equally difficult to question. These are clearly very patriarchal and very homophobic lands. And the sad thing is, of course, uh, homophobia can exist on very different sides of the ideological spectrum.
1: What advice would you give to people listening to this who might be nervous about the speaking up on issues, but also finding their own voice?
0: Um, I think they would know the right time. You know, Uh, I I don't like to put pressure. I don't think we should put pressure on ourselves in any way. Of course, there's a sense of lightness when it comes, you know, when when you're able to say, this is who I am, this is how I feel. But they would know the right time. And to me, life is always about a journey. Uh, We all go through so many different seasons. We keep changing, we keep evolving. There's a reason why our element is mostly made of water. It's supposed to flow. So what I, if I may say this, what I would caution them against is just putting themselves in one single box. You know, I'm this, I'm that. We are many things at the same time. And that's the beauty of being a human. Alif Shafak, thank you so much. Thank you so much.
1: How I Found My Voice is a podcast from Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassett. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please support us by taking a moment to rate and review How I Found My Voice on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and helps others to find the show.